Our guest today is Charlie Blair from the Blair Academy. There are some huge existential challenges that the West are facing, such as how we tackle climate change, how do we tackle obesity, and how do we look after an aging population. So the team were very excited to pitch the Blair Academy. Although when they first mentioned hip-hop dancing for grannies, I was a bit worried that we might be falling for some kind of Ali G prank. But as I read more about Charlie, the more impressed I was. She has taken what seemed a pretty off-the-wall idea and turned it into a small, thriving social enterprise. They have now reached over 6,000 people and have a small crack team. Charlie was recently featured on NatWest's Wise 100, celebrating the top female social entrepreneurs in the country. The Blair Academy is a culmination of Charlie's experiences as a hip-hop dancer, homeless teenager, and caring for her own grandma. On to today's episode. Charlie, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to be here. So hip-hop dancing for Grammys is a very much a job of the future that I've not come across before. Tell us the moment that kick-started the whole idea. So it's not actually a job that I had really envisaged having either. Uh, I was in my final year of my dance degree at university and my nan, who I was incredibly close with, was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. So I was trying to juggle her chemo appointments with my dissertation and and all of that good stuff. And essentially she was given an exercise program to follow alongside her chemotherapy and radiotherapy and she despised it. And she was very vocal. She let all the doctors know that she did not want to engage in this exercise program. Um, And of course we wanted her to be as healthy and happy as she possibly could in those kind of later stages of her life. So I came wading in, said, look, Nan, I'm a hip hop dancer. Our moves are really fun and energetic. It will be a laugh. You know, it's, it's not what you think of kind of boring exercise programs. It'll be really different. So I just developed it for my nan to do in her living room. And I, of course, had reservations. You know, she was nearly 70 years old. She was terminally ill. She didn't like hip hop music. What were the chances that she would engage? But she did. And she absolutely loved it. And she was just on to me from then. She's like, you've got to get this out there. You know, call the care homes. I bet they'd love to do this. You know, there's plenty of older people that would love to do something like this. And I was still then a bit like, oh, I don't know, Nan. I think you just like it because you're my Nan and you love everything that I do. But I listened to her advice and called to the care homes. They let me come in, give it a try. Lots of them, much like most people that hear about it, were like, huh? You want to do what? And I was like, yeah, honestly, I know what I'm doing. And yeah, we're still in the very first care home that let me come in and try the concept nearly five years later. So, And did how, how much resistance did you get at first? Because I can imagine some care homes almost thinking, you know, sounds like some kind of wind up. Yeah, for sure. And lots of them were like, are you sure you've got the right number? Do you realize that we're a residential nursing home with dementia? And I'm like, no, honestly, I know it's, <laughs> I have got the right number, but I would say as much as it like was head turning and people were like, huh? It wasn't so much in a negative way. People were just like, whoa, I've never seen or been offered anything like this before. And 
what we had was lots of people saying, oh, you know, my residents would love that. That sounds so different to anything that we've got happening in the home already at the moment. So there was lots of excitement amidst the kind of confusion. People didn't really get it. They couldn't imagine what it would look like to have older people doing hip hop in a chair. So we always offer a free trial um, because I understand that people need to kind of wrap their head around it. So I'm like, let me come in deliver a session. It will be something a little bit different um, for the residents. If they like it, then we'll come back. If they don't, no problem. You know, they've tried something new and hopefully had a bit of a laugh with us. And in five years, we've only had six organizations that have had a free trial and haven't gone on to book with us after. So we've got a good track records, I think, so far. And You mentioned a dance dissertation there. What's kind of involved in a dance dissertation? So a lot of people make the presumption that when you do a dance degree, there isn't really much writing involved and there's just lots of physical dancing. Um, But actually, my degree was very multifaceted in the sense that we had lots of different modules where we did a variety of things in the industry. So we got to go out and teach. We got to put on events, go to auditions and performances. But then we also did a lot of theory work about the history of, of dance styles because we studied lots of different dance styles from across the world. My degree was actually in urban practice. So urban practice refers to lots of the dance styles that came from the black diaspora and weren't really formed in a dance studio. So there's lots of social dance styles that were formed out in the streets at parties, just like hip hop and, and break dancing were. So for my dissertation, personally, I chose to look at gender when it comes to breaking. My dissertation was called Breaking the Mold, Being a Girl, because we call ourselves B-boys and B-girls in the breaking world. And breaking is typically a very masculine sport. People perceive it to be, you know, like you have to be very strong and basically a man to get involved. So it was really interesting to me to kind of delve into those gender politics that come into play and what it means to kind of express yourself and your identity through your body. So there's lots that you can kind of delve into with the history of dance and also the future of what could come from it. And when did you first discover hip hop? When did you first listen to it as a genre? So I was very lucky to grow up in a household where both my parents were very into music and had like eclectic music taste. My dad specifically was a big hip hop head and I would help him organize all of his CDs into like alphabetical order. And he would be so meticulous in like signing all of the cases and he would show me all of the artwork. So I think on a musical sense, like my dad definitely was the first to like expose me to those sounds and instinctively I wanted to dance to them. But I also think I'm I'm part of the generation where we saw lots of videos on MTV and, you know, the likes of like Janet Jackson coming out with insane choreography and and then kind of later down the line, like the Chris Browns and Rihanna's and Beyonce. Like I was there glued, watching all the dance moves, wanting to emulate them. And same, you know, in the school playground, we had like a little corner that was just for the, the girls that wanted to come up with a dance routine. And then the boys would come over when they had finished football and like throw their moves in. So it's always been something that was very present in my life. I almost can't remember a time when I didn't listen to hip hop and, and dance. During my first week 
of working in London, I bumped into Jay-Z at a hotel and I thought that was just London, always the way. It was uh, It was so surreal. I'm going off on a tangent massively with this now, but it was literally like the other side of the, of the bar. So yeah, I'm sure he probably still tells people about it as well when he when he met that Jimmy McLaughlin. No doubt. <laughs> so- that's great. You should have. I, I would. What well, the biggest thing that I would tell people? Like, by the way, met Jay Z. Just saying. That J- that Jay Z. He's he's met me. Yeah. Do you know it's before camera? This shows my age. It was kind of before camera phones were really prevalent. Actually, so there's no way I can even kind of regret not getting a photo because it was. We all had those rubbish blackberries that didn't really take very good ones. So um, yeah, that's <laughs> very very random. Um, when did you first kind of? realize that you'd really got something here with this like you know when did you you know you talked about approaching these different care homes kind of almost going door to door phone to phone and you know having a bit of resistance getting in but when did you think i've really got something here i'm going to need to take people on to help me so i think the first feeling that i had that i was really onto something was about five or six months into launching the business I was still working full time for a performing arts company when I launched. My boss was super supportive. I'd kind of gone to him for some mentoring in the run up to starting the business. And he knew all about the vision. And about, as I say, five or six months in, um, my nan passed away who had kind of inspired the whole thing. And I felt totally compelled to like listen to exactly what she had said. I thought, no, she is onto something here. So I went and I trained to be a carer. Uh, so I was going into people's houses, getting them washed and dressed and cooking their dinner. And for me, it was really about understanding what it was like to live with a multitude of health conditions and, and be an older person in this kind of time and, and geographical space. So I went into that world. Again, was still working full time. And my boss gave me an ultimatum basically one day. He said, look, I can see that you really love what you're doing and I think it needs you to commit all of your time to it. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, I need this job. I mean, I've got bills to pay. I'm not ready to take that jump. I don't know if this is going to work. Um, but when I, I really considered it, I thought, no, he's right. I need to give it a shot at kind of giving this everything. So at that point, I was kind of freelance, just me teaching all of the classes and where I was able to dedicate that time, the business started to grow. We got a lot more inquiries. I had a feature on ITV News, which like really blew us up. Care homes were literally calling the minute the segment stopped saying, we need you. We have just seen you on the news and this is phenomenal. So we had like a bit of a growth spurt and that's when I decided to take on my first uh, member of staff. And I went to my university, uh, kind of cheated a little bit. I said, look, I want somebody who's just like me. Who have you got in your cohort right now that's like me? And they said, we've got this girl, Sophie. So I said, right, let me, let me speak to Sophie. And Sophie's still with me now. And she was in many ways just like me. And she's got a great infectious energy that just bodes so well in the care home. So I took her on. And then about three or four weeks later, the COVID pandemic hit and I had no work for me or Sophie. How did you, how did you manage that? Cause that must've been a big impact on the business, not just, you know, for a, quite a while as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like 
those first kind of few days when we started to learn about what what it was and how it was going to affect us and the lockdowns and stuff, I spent like three days just in the dark crying, thinking, oh gosh, I left my job. <laughs> have I done the right thing? The care homes have all closed their doors. I have absolutely no income whatsoever. And yeah, I was really panicked because I, I'm I'm a bit of a control freak and I like to try and mitigate risk as much as I can and think about every like possible scenario that could happen and like plan ahead for that in the business. And a global pandemic, no matter how much I overthink, was not in my remit at all. I didn't think about that one. And it hit me. It really hit me. So I had a few days of like, oh, woe is me. I've totally messed up. Um, and then I realized that that wasn't really going to be very helpful and that actually the people I, were wor- I was working with in the care homes, they would need my service now more than ever. You know, we're very much about kind of combating loneliness, bringing people together, giving them a safe space to focus on their health. Through, you know, the lockdowns, we knew that social isolation and physical inactivity were just going to worsen amongst that age group. So I just felt this fire then of like, oh, no, 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 no. I can't go now. Like they need me now more than ever. So like a lot of businesses, we went quite digital. I managed to secure some funding to get some portal devices. We delivered those to the care homes, helped them set them up. And then we were able to reinstate the classes through live stream. And that then, of course, kind of opened up a new world because all of a sudden I could be at a care home in Manchester, Liverpool, Anyway, really in the world. So again, we had another kind of bit of uh, of a growth spur, a more unexpected one through the lockdown once we had got the equipment and kind of changed our strategy a little bit because people were desperate to, you know, still keep their residents entertained and keep them active. So we actually had a lot more inquiries than pre-COVID. Yeah. What an amazing way that worked out. And what what else has been your kind of big growth spurts and engines you talked about being on itv and now the ability to kind of do it remotely what else has been the kind of key driver in in growing the the blair partnership quite early on i became aware of a group called unlimited who support social entrepreneurs and i saw one of their flyers in my local high street and i thought oh this looks really interesting and i think this this could be for me but i don't know if i'm a social entrepreneur I didn't even really know what that was. So I went to one of their events and they were like, yes, you are absolutely a social entrepreneur. And there are lots of ways that we could support you. Because I went in saying, you know, I don't really actually know much about business. I haven't got a background in this. I've just done a few different kind of graduate jobs that have given me some experience. And I'm, I'm trying to turn that experience now into something that's valuable for my own business. So it was very much like, you know, what, am I even qualified? I had a lot of like imposter syndrome in the beginning. It was like, am I even qualified to to own this business? Um, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I need some support here. And then I felt quite lonely. Um, you know, I was used to being in a workplace where you had a team around you and all of a sudden it was just me flat in my bedroom trying to come up with solutions. So I think one of the instrumental things to kind of me developing and also the business growing was that I did, kind of accelerator or an incubator program with Unlimited very early on in my entrepreneur journey 
around the same time that I had left my job. So I was very lucky to get mentorship, lots of different workshops some startup funding, because up until that point, I'd just been bootstrapping and using my own money to buy flyers and things like that. So that definitely gave a boost, like having that level of support. And then once I learned that I could get that, I kind of kept up those programs. So about a year later, I did a competition with my university, which again was like a boot camp process and there was prize money at the end and I won. And then about a year after that, I did another one with Deutsche Bank on MeWe 360. Um, and again, I was a winner for that one. So I've been really lucky at like pivotal moments in the journey to have mentorship and to be part of like a network of entrepreneurs that can support you and just understand where you're coming from, that you can vent to. So I would say like being on those programs and doing those competitions definitely helped me to elevate the business. And I think it's a lot more than just the financials. Like, of course, when you get grant funding, boost the business in incredible ways but I honestly think like the mentorship and doing all of the workshops and coaching and stuff was a lot more valuable than the money that we actually received in that early phase you say you were lucky and one of the most uh, successful entrepreneurs that we've ever had on the show Greg Marsh earlier this season says that luck is a huge factor in business but I also think you're slightly doing yourself down there in terms of like you've put in a, an incredible amount of work to kind of get the look and get the break so I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss it sort of too too much and so tell us about the people that you hire now right because you're at six people I believe I'm right in saying yeah absolutely and, and growing still we're about to put out an advert so as I mentioned I started by just going back to my uni people that have the same training as me kind of hip-hop wise and just like you, a lot of them were surprised that this was a job that was on offer. They were like, I didn't know that was a thing that I could do. But now, like, luckily my university, like, they added in a module that was kind of inspired by lots of different work out in the community with older people. And they include the work that Blair Academy does um, as part of that. So it kind of raised our exposure amongst the students. So we've had some people through UEL and other universities but we've also got movement therapists, people that do somatic touch therapy, people that were formerly carers like me. Um, so it's a super varied team. And when I'm interviewing, what I have to make really clear is that although we're a dance company and yes, it's obviously very much about dance, it's more so about the type of person that can go into these environments some people my age, I'm 28, some people my age have never stepped foot in a care home before and it can be quite daunting. It can be a very emotive experience as well when you're working with people that are sometimes in the last stages of their life. So it's really about finding like just gems of people that have got so much compassion, empathy, understanding, but they're also really energetic and, you know, they can go into a room where most people have fallen asleep and they've had the same thing on the telly for the past three hours and completely turn the mood of that room around. So I think that's the, the kind of the main thing in our team is being a person that can go into an environment and just woo, blow the roof off. And how, and, and tell us some of the stories that you must have encountered because you've 
uh, engaged with 6,000 people now, I think. Like, there must have been some pretty big skeptics in that group at points. Oh, for sure. And almost daily, something happens to like myself or one of the teachers that either makes us think, oh, we're just the luckiest people in the world to do what we do, or, oh, goodness, I want the ground to swallow me. <laughs> I'd say the thing about working with older people is that a lot of the time they don't have any filter and it's like my favorite thing they just say it exactly how it is right but you can imagine through that we've had some some funny comments over the years just a couple of weeks ago I was in one of our homes I was really going for it had my pom-poms out really putting in all the energy this lady was kind of dozing off she just looked up at me when are you going to F off and go home? <laughs> and I thought, I would love you. I'm going to go soon. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, we do get sometimes people that haven't chosen to like be in that room. A carer has just willed them in, like with goodwill and good intention, but they've got no interest in listening or getting involved. And they're just like, mate, you just go away. <laughs> and you have to have a pretty thick skin you know, to be told to F off and, and still come back every week with the hopes that they, you know, they didn't mean it in that moment. It's quite quite good training for politics. If you uh, <laughs> if you ever want to consider that as a career, being told to F off and come back again the following week. Yeah. Just FYI. I'm not suggesting you do do a career change, but... Good point there, you know, and I have <laughs> low-key... Because so, I, got, I got Points of Light Award from Boris Johnson in uh, 2021. Oh. And I got to go to Downing Street and get my awards in the garden just before he left. And when I walked in, I thought, hmm, do you know what? I'm the I'm the best Blair that's ever come into this building. We didn't have much hope with Sony. So just maybe I should rethink my career. And now that you've said that, I'm just going to take it as a sign. Yeah, exactly. The the new Blair. Blairism Mark II. Everywhere I go, oh, are you, are you related? No, no, no relation. <laughs> And and what are before you before you become prime minister? What are the what are the plans uh, that you have? Like in terms of like how big do you want to go, and 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 where can this realistically go? You know how how can you really grow the Blair Academy? I think in like a blue sky thinking sense, it could go absolutely anywhere because there are older people all over the world, and dance is a universal language. You know, it goes beyond kind of vocal language barriers. So there are times where I think, you know, I could move to anywhere in the world and make this concept work. But I think in terms of like our strategy for growth at the moment, the first has been growing our team here in London so we can deliver more sessions, reach more people, and that will continue. But what we've also been doing is developing an online training platform for the people that work in the care homes because we really want to support improving overall activities in care homes and how we go about delivering those, because we find that often the approach is very dated, it's assumptive, it can be quite boring. And we just want to help on a very large scale, the care homes to change their approach that actually they're offering activities that resonate with people's life experiences, that affirm their identity, you know, I think it could be really isolating if you've lived your whole life eating certain food, listening to certain music, watching certain things on TV, and then you're placed into a care setting where none of those things are reflected back to you. 
So for me, hip hop won't always be the answer. By the time perhaps I'm in a care home, I want to listen to a bit of UK Garage. That'll take me back to my young days. I might want a bit of drum and bass. Be like, yeah, I used to go out raving to this. So, you know, it, it may evolve over time. Hip hop for me is the thing right now that works really well in reaching people. And I think through our online platform and expanding the teaching team, we'll be able to grow. But that's not to say that in a few years time, they'll say, oh, that's so dated, all this hip hop that you're doing. We want to do this now. So it might not be the answer forever. And I'm acutely aware of that, but I definitely think it's part of the solution at the moment, especially, you know, hip hop started in the 70s. It's a really good time period, actually, when you look back for people that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s now to remind them of good times. Well, this is partly it. I mean, I speak to Eliza Philby, who's a generational historian on another podcast I run called The Shift with Eliza Philby and Jimmy McLaughlin. And it is one of the points that she makes is that the people that met in care homes now you know, met through dances, right? That was how they met kind of in the 50s and 60s, right? That's how they did it. So I think like doing what you're doing, going in and reconjuring that kind of love of dance through kind of more modern methods and more modern genres is is amazing. And it's it's such a it's such a clever idea and it's so amazing to have seen you kind of scale it. And talked about luck earlier and so on, but it's not always been lucky. I mean you were homeless at one stage, right? I mean, that must have been an enormous challenge. Well, absolutely. So growing up, there'd been lots going on at home, domestic violence, um, all sorts happening. And at 19, my mum basically was at a place where I couldn't be at home anymore. I myself was in a very toxic relationship as well. And my mum saw all of those warning signs and was like desperately trying to get me to see them. And I couldn't because I was 19 and I thought I knew it all. So yeah, I ended up living in a YMCA hostel in Walthamstow. And it was just a huge reality check. As I say, I thought I was really grown up and I, I knew it all. And people always said I was mature for my age. I think mainly because of the trauma I'd experienced. I'd seen a lot of life. I felt like I'd lived a lot of life at a very young age. So I thought I was very grown. And when I got there and spent the first night alone there, I realized that actually I was still uh, very vulnerable and very young. And um, yeah, it, it was super scary. But I was dancing every day while I was there. Like they had um, an aerobic studio that they used to run classes in. And of an evening, it would empty out once the classes would finish. And there was a security guard there, Steve. And um, I think he had a little soft spot for me. I'd befriend me. I'd say, oh, Steve, do you mind if I just go in for a bit? It's all right then. So I used to dance in there at night. And suddenly dance went from like just being this hobby, this thing that I liked, that I'd always done, to the thing that was really helping me get through a difficult time. And so it was just helping me to process everything that I was feeling and dealing with. So when I left the hostel, eventually and moved out I actually started doing workshops in other hostels and homeless shelters because I just felt like I had that relatability I was like okay I understand where you're at I get what you might be feeling I don't have all the answers but I can come in for an hour and help you escape a little bit or help you just work through some of those things that you're thinking and feeling 
Well, I thought that's where it would stay, to be honest. I'd, I'd never anticipated it going into older adults. I always thought because of my lived experience, I would just stay in hostels. And I still go to a number of hostels now, just voluntarily myself, because if I can give that same power back to someone that I have found through dance in that time, then that would be a really a great thing. How many people are you reaching a week at the moment? Between 21 and 25 classes a week at the moment. Some of our classes are fortnightly. And say on average, like 10 people. So around 200 people a week at the moment that we're reaching, which feels insane. Like when you have a team and you have this capacity to deliver more, it just feels great. You know, there are times like right now I'm, I'm here with you, but there's a Blair Academy class running down the road and it feels very the real yeah well next time we can do it in person and you can uh you can show me some moves i'm sure my uh daughters would love to see me try that and just <laughs> one just one final question as well is there is there anyone else on the on your journey that you've seen so far that's kind of really impressed you and almost like a pass the mic moment in terms of somebody else that we who's doing something different that we should get on the show there's a good few people put you on the spot slightly haven't i so one of the best ventures that I ever came across, right, and I'm, this is kind of cheated because I don't, I can't actually remember the name of the gentleman who started it, but maybe your team can do some research. But there was a guy that I met and he was training barbers to be therapists. And he basically said that a lot of men, you know, they need some support with their mental health and the barbershop is a place where they naturally open up and have quite vulnerable conversations so if he could equip barbers with the skills to actually advise and 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 give real therapeutic advice i wish i came up with that that is so so cool so i, I can't remember his name bless him but perhaps you can find him we will uh... hunt them down please but somebody who i do know two people actually there's an organization called camarados we are camarados and they set up public living rooms all over the place so they go around British Heart Foundation and anywhere that they can get in, basically, and they borrow bits of furniture and they pop the furniture up indoors, outdoors, and they bring people together in these living rooms. And it's basically a place of no judgment. There's no agenda. There's no advice. People can just have a chill, have a cup of tea, chat, meet people they'd never, ever meet before. And their founder, Math Potts, is a very interesting entrepreneur that I met through Unlimited and I've worked with them across the country and really really admire their ethos so I'll shout them out and also my good friend and team member of the Blair Academy Sarah Lisney she runs a poetry group called Poetic Conscience it's essentially about representation in the poetry world because she was going to lots of events and feeling very out of place as a young black woman and for the last four years, she's created the most incredible spaces for people to open up, express themselves. And she's really changing the landscape of what poetry looks like and a lot of the kind of stereotypes and perceptions around it. So I find her work very, very interesting. Brilliant. Charlie, thanks so much. It's been brilliant to have you on. And it's such an inspiring story. When the team first came to me with this idea, I, I was a bit kind of like, where is this going, etc. But it's incredible what you've done and what you've built. And I'm sure your nan and all your family are very proud of it. It's a really inspiring story. 
Um, and uh, yeah, maybe you can show me some hip hop moves in the future. 100%. I'll be offended if you don't invite me back to show you some moves. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok, and of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below. Thank you.